Well, good morning again, everybody, and welcome to New Community. Um, it's good to have you here. My, uh, my second goal is, is, to, is, to, is to give you a short message today because I'm very, very aware of, uh, of um, this climate. My first goal is to say what I'm supposed to say. So there's a balance between saying what I'm supposed to say and, and being faithful to what I have this morning and, uh, and trying not to belabor the point. And so um, I, uh, I, I, I'm sort of attaching this morning's message to last week's message. And in a minute, we're going to go back to Acts chapter 6. Um, but, but before we go to Acts chapter 6, I want to bring you back to it in the way of giving you some context. And as we look at the passage, uh, have this in mind that in Acts chapter 6, and and we are, by the way, in a sermon series on the gospel, um, and we're we're, we're thankful for Blake and Nathan who have preached in this uh, message series so far. Pastor Angela will be preaching next week. And uh, we're already grateful for what God will be doing in her over the week as she prepares for us. Uh, Last week, I talked about how the gospel relates to service. And in the chapter where we will go to, in these verses that we will go to in Acts chapter 6, God is at work in the church. The Holy Spirit is moving in the church in a way that um, that is observable. People are growing in their faith. The gospel is spreading. And the word of God is increasing. And at the same time, in the midst of this work of God, the church is experiencing discrimination. God is moving and working, and at the same time, uh, there are people who are being unfairly treated in Acts chapter 6. And so the Hellenist widows, Hellenist is Luke's word in the book of Acts for Greek-speaking Jews. All of the Christians are Jewish at this time, and some of them speak Greek. They are from the diaspora, which means they have left Jerusalem and went to many lands. They have picked up the more predominant language of Greek and lost their native tongue. And and Luke calls these widows, these women, uh, Hellenists. And and these Greek-speaking widows, these Hellenists, come to the church's leaders and say to them, um, we are not getting the treatment that we should. We're not getting um, in the daily distribution what the Aramaic-speaking widows are getting. And so what happens is there is a conflict in the church because of this inequity. And, And in the midst of this conflict, It doesn't turn into a divisive issue. It turns into an opportunity for God to bring new people into the church to serve. And and the gospel that has transformed people's lives and that is transforming people's lives is responsible for bringing people in to serve. Now, now I, I, I bring that up because... The gospel and serving and people coming in to serve are not the only things happening in the text. There is something else happening in Acts chapter 6 that I want you uh, to to think about. These widows who speak Greek are, 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 are at the mercy of the church. The church is responsible for obeying what it always has obeyed. And that is the the long thread of scripture in the Old Testament that says, take care of the widow, take care of the orphan, take care of children, take care of the 
poor take care of the traveler or the sojourner. And, and, and the widows are, are, are relying on the church to do precisely that. They're, they're widows. So their husbands have died. Their families are not there because they've come from the diaspora back into Jerusalem, probably to die and to be entombed, right? And so they're at the mercy of the church doing what it has always done. Now, as we come to this text in a moment, I want to charge you because if we're not careful, we'll look at this passage and we'll see the church's leaders responding to a need. We'll see the people mobilizing for service and and we'll miss how deep the character of Christ has to be in the widows for them to respond to the church after being wrong. If we're not careful when we look at this text, if we're not patient with this text, we'll see how the Spirit enables people to serve and and, and calls people to leadership and to service, but we won't necessarily see how the Spirit of God is at work empowering the people who are served and who are wronged to forgive those wrongs. The church is in the midst of this conflict, and I think um, that this conflict is an opportunity for what I'll call this morning a virtue to stand strong in the church. Now, when I use the word virtue, I'm using it um, drawing from one of the theologians in our denomination, uh, Michelle Clifton Soderstrom. I read her book this week, and uh, it's called Angels, um, Angels, Worms, and Boogies. And uh, she, says, she says of virtues something that's interesting, that's guiding how I talk about this morning, the virtue of forgiveness. She says that a virtue is an excellence of character that is developed over time. She says that virtues, these excellences of character, are determined by who we are and by what we are, and they equipped us to act well in light of this identity. So, so the virtue is a characteristic that, 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 that is based upon who we are. So our identity determines this virtue or this excellence. And, and, and she talks about a boat as an example of a virtue. She says that, that one of the attributes or part of what it means to be a boat, and just kind of stay with me here, is to float. And so that uh, a buoyancy is a virtue for boats. Buoyancy is a virtue. Buoyancy is an excellence of the boat. She says that the buoyancy enables the boat to float. Now, those are sort of, and that's an example of a virtue. And then she goes into give a theological virtue. She talks about faith, hope, and love. And the thing she says about theological virtues is that there is a characteristic about virtues, and then there is a corresponding action. There is uh, the buoyancy and then the action of floating. But when it comes to the theological virtues, the virtue and the act are the same. So the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love are also the acts of those virtues. Are you guys following me? Say no if you're not. All right, I'm going to stay with it just in case you didn't say no. So, so there is a characteristic and there is an action following the characteristic. So for faith, 
Faith is belief. The characteristic is belief, but the action is also believe. We have belief and we also believe. The, 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 the virtue of love is the same. We have love and we also love. We have hope and we also hope. And she's talking about theological virtues here. And this morning, I'm going to give you what I think is another theological virtue. Now, my task is to talk about the gospel and relationships. But rather than talk to you about specific relationships like friendship or marriage or, or dating relationships, what I want to do is step away from those specifics and give you this broad virtue that we'll interact with that will impact all of the relationships that we have. And that virtue is forgiveness. Say the word forgiveness. Forgiveness is this characteristic and this corresponding behavior. It is an attitude and it is a practice. It is the work of God, this attitude of grace that expresses itself in the behavior of pardoning a wrong. And and I want to tell you this morning that forgiveness is at the bottom of all Christian relationships. It needs to be. Think about this passage, think about this context as we look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It's here. Now in these days, I'll read it for you, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to pray and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. I'll give you a few um, points about forgiveness coming out of this text. And then we'll have communion and we'll go. Now, now before I get to that first point of mine, that second point, that third point, I want you to try to sit with what forgiveness means to the different people in this text. Because I know that there's some of you here and you hear the topic of forgiveness and you will feel like the Aramaic-speaking Christians. You, when it's been revealed to you, will see that you have been one of the people who have wronged somebody else. 
you have benefited from maybe a system, a, 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 a structure that has wronged someone else. And, and, and forgiveness is different uh, from the perspective of the Aramaic-speaking Christian in this text. They receive forgiveness, and, 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 and their response probably is one of gratitude. But, but on the other hand, when you're a widow who has been neglected in the daily distribution, forgiveness is a different act. It takes something different from you to forgive having been wronged than it does for someone to receive forgiveness. And this morning, there are probably those of us who are here who would identify more quickly with people who have been wronged, and others of us feel like we look at this text and we have wronged others. For some folks, forgiving is an opportunity for gratitude. For other folks, forgiveness is a little painful. And, and, and I want you to try to hear this message because all of us are in relationships with, with other people and we all float between the ones who wrong people and the ones who are wronged by people. Now that said, there are a couple of things that happen when we forgive. The first thing that happens when we forgive is uh, we hurt. We hurt. In fact, not only do we hurt when we forgive, we die. In in the language of the Bible, every time we forgive, we have a, a small death happen. Every time we pardon someone, for a wrong that is done, we, uh, we, we, we kill off some aspect of ourselves. And Scripture talks about that death as death to ourselves, death to our flesh, death to our old nature, death to our old identity, death to our old person. And I want to tell you that forgiveness is painful. It is hurtful because it is death. For the Christian, every time we act in a way that I believe these widows are acting in Acts chapter 6, every time we act in a way that you have probably acted in your life, it has felt a little bit like death because we die to a path. We die to an identity. We die to an identity of sinner and we, we, we live to a different identity. We die to a path that leads to destruction and we connect to a path that the Bible says leads to life and peace. If, 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 if Paul is true when he talks about living by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, uh, that walking and that living means death to the old parts of us. And when we forgive and when we do things like forgiveness in relationship to people that we love, that we care about, and people that we maybe don't even know, we're dying to this death and walking a little closer to the Holy Spirit. And I want to ask you this morning to think about your relationships. Over the next few moments, think about uh, the people uh, that you like and maybe the people you don't like, people that you are in relationship with, and to think about what would prevent you from forgiving them. And and, and again, some of you are here and you don't have uh, someone to forgive right away, and so maybe this message is one that you put in your uh, hip pocket. But but some of you uh, hear me and, and the idea of 
forgiveness is right in front of you. And I want you to think about what would stop you from forgiving. What would stop you from, uh, from mirroring and from imitating the example of these widows in Acts chapter 6 and certainly our Savior throughout his life and his ministry? Would, would anger uh, prevent you from forgiving someone? Would, would resentment or bitterness uh, present, uh, prevent you rather from, from forgiving somebody? Would, would a memory stop you from forgiving? And, and, and what, whatever it is that you can think of in your life that are the reasons why you won't forgive, those are the things that we come to God with And we say, God, here am I. This is what I have. This is what you say. Do your work. And and, and in its text, forgiveness isn't even an individual gesture. It is a community coming together, a community of women, a community of widows coming together to the leaders who have been wronged and and these leaders on behalf of the church having to respond to their wrong while these widows have the opportunity to say, God, we have been neglected. And yet forgiveness is characteristic of the kingdom of God. That old nature, that old person in us, that that part of us that God continues to redeem and sanctify day after day tells us that things like forgiveness is uh, impossible, that things like forgiveness is not safe. That, that voice tells us that it is, more, um, it, is, it, is, it is more certain for us to hold forgiveness close to ourselves than give it away. And, and the truth be told, there is something right about that voice, that holding something against somebody else is right, that it is normal, that it is natural, that, that it is, there, there is a certain rightness to being wronged and to not forgiving. And yet, all of Jesus' ministry is about giving us a new rightness. All of his work and all of his teachings are about us confronting what is normal and natural with what is a new nature. And, and forgiveness is how that new nature looks in real time. It's not theoretical. It is dirty. It is messy. It is hurtful. And yet in our relationships, if we don't have this act that God enables... We don't reflect Christ. So when we forgive, we hurt. Number two, when we forgive, uh, we act as reconcilers. Reconciliation is a word, and we, we, talk, we talk about reconciliation in our church in different ways. And reconciliation, um, uh, which for me is bringing together two broken apart people, two parties that are estranged. Reconciliation happens in relationships because it has already happened in God. God has reconciled us because of love through Christ. And because of what God has done, we're able 
to do the same thing. Um, God reconciles us in Christ. God reaches into creation. God reaches into humanity with a forgiving love. And, 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 and what that means, if reconciliation or forgiveness or, or uh, repair starts there, that means that you and I will never be able to forgive a person if we have never experienced God's forgiveness of us. But what that also means is we can forgive people if we have experienced God's forgiveness of us. That does not say what forgiveness will look like in a particular problem that you have with the person. It does not say what the, how the conflict will end. But it does say if you and I can sit with the deep reconciliation that Christ has provided for us, if you and I can understand the, the, the gospel in such a way that we see our lives as broken apart and Christ coming and repairing us, if we can see that, that, that what Christ does is bring us to God who was waiting for us, who are a damaged and a wounded and a, and a rebellious people, if we can see Christ reconciling us, then the possibility of our reconciling with others is present. The only way we will be able to embody this virtue of forgiveness and be a reconciler is if we uh, are reconciled to God. Uh, uh, there's a word uh, in, in, in the- theology, regeneration. And regeneration is, is kind of a big term that means a lot of things. It means uh, the, the Spirit of God uh, uh, changing you inside. It means the Spirit of God giving you life where there was death. It is a process of God working in you. And I read about the Spirit in regeneration this week that the way the Spirit regenerates us is by reminding us that we are standing or sitting in the presence of God. Now, now think about that for a minute. Think about that. If you're, you are, you are, you are, I'm the only one standing. You're sitting. So on your, on, your, on, your, on your knees, put your hands out like this and just sort of posture yourself with your forearms on your legs and, and sit for a moment with this, uh, that the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are sitting in the presence of God. Now, now hear that language. Close your eyes if you need to. Look at something in this sanctuary and hear this language of sitting in the presence of God. If it is true that the God in whose presence we sit is a God of reconciliation, if it is true that the God in whose presence we sit is a God who loves us perfectly, if it is true, as the Holy Spirit tells us, that we are in God's presence, loved and chosen and wanted and forgiven, with your hands on your legs, try to envision sitting next to you the person who has wronged you most. What the Spirit of God does in pieces, in steps, throughout the days and weeks of our lives is reminds us of a very, very Christian behavior. And that is bringing the people who have wronged us 
into the presence of God. The Holy Spirit turns our eyes to the person, to the persons, to the structures, to the people who have marred us, who have broken us, who have discouraged us, who have disappointed us, who have wronged us. The Spirit turns our eyes to them and turns our eyes to God. And in one motion we see people who have wronged us and in another motion we see a God who has forgiven us. And the work of regeneration is bringing together those two pictures. How, in other words, do I sit in the presence of God who has forgiven me perfectly, wholly, completely, and utterly, and at the same time deal with the people who have hurt me so? And the answer to that question is how you forgive them. Is the Holy Spirit working in you to forgive the people who by all intents and practices and purposes should not be forgiven? Everybody, maybe you're still looking, look back this way or look wherever you want. Everybody in that vision, in your vision, outside of God needs forgiveness. And when we forgive, we become actors in God's work in the Holy Spirit's process of regeneration and change and we become agents of that reconciliation. Last week when I talked about service, I don't think I told you that these widows in this text, these widows uh, who were poor, they were without resource, they had no money. That's what I mean. They had no money. They were subject to the mercy of the community around them. They, they had no family uh, because their husbands were dead and their extended families were likely still in the diaspora. They had come back to Jerusalem. They were largely alone. These widows They they didn't have money. They didn't have people around them they were naturally connected to. And so they had time to serve. They served the church. And, 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 And if anybody is a candidate for reconciliation, it is this group of widows who gave all that they had, which was not money, but which was time and service, and they were still neglected. And they are an example, often an unnamed example, often an unacknowledged example of what it means for Christians to reconcile. I asked you a moment ago to have in your minds people who have wronged you. And and, and I think... Um, and, and I want you to hear me talk about forgiveness in a particular way. I don't want you to hear uh, sort of the, the, the popular notion of forgiveness, the, the mistaken notion of forgiveness. And that often is that, you know, we have these warm feelings again for people who have hurt us or, you know, we automatically or we feel the way we used to feel. Uh, and we get these fascinating pictures of what it means to forgive. And part of that is because we have a fascinating picture in Jesus of what forgiveness is. But for the church, we move toward the picture that is Jesus. 
And for some of us, moving toward the picture of forgiveness that we see in Jesus Christ is not jumping past all of our feelings and all of a sudden loving the person the way we used to love. That's not even often psychologically possible. For us, it is a movement toward uh, some of you. I, I, you know, I was thinking about this text and this message. I thought about two people uh, that is uh, that one has been very difficult for me to forgive, uh, and it took me years to forgive uh, this guy. I'll say this guy. Uh, and you know, I had this conflict with him. It had to do with money. It was years ago, and I remember for several years, I just. You know, somebody would mention them, and I'd just, like, spit almost, you know. And it, it just took, it took, it took, and it took me a couple of years just to stop spitting, you know, at the idea of this guy. And at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm at the same time, I was studying theology. I was in grad school. In fact, this was before seminary. I'm thinking, forgiveness, huh, reconciliation, substitutionary atonement, what? <laughs> and I'd spit at this guy's memory. And, uh, and it was very difficult for me uh, to forgive his wrong. And, uh, and, and that was a, that's a large, looming example. And there's another example, as I'm thinking about this passage, as I'm thinking about what God has done and is doing in me with regard to my relationships. You know who the hardest person for me to forgive is? My wife. And that's a little jarring when you hear it at first. But what, what I mean by that is I, I have to forgive her so much. No, no, no. You weren't supposed to laugh at that. You misunderstand. You misunderstand. You misunderstand. Let me back up for the sake of the podcast. Uh, what, I mean, what I mean by that is, you know, in a marriage, when you're married, you know, they don't go anywhere, the spouses. You know, we're always there, right? And, and, so, and so every day I'm coming to my expectations of my wife. I'm coming to my idea of her. I'm coming to all of the things we communicate and that we don't. And there's a lot of opportunity for misunderstanding, for her to miss my mark, for me to miss her mark. And, and it's harder. For, have you ever heard of the words kitchen sink in an argument? This is a, this is a term straight out of marital therapy. Uh, bad arguments is you, you bring up an issue, right? You talk long enough, and somebody just starts throwing in stuff that doesn't relate to the topic. It's just like, wait a minute. We were talking about, what, you're a witness? Man, Darius, everybody who can't see me, is a witness, and he's filling me. Um, and what happens in this argument is we're supposed to be talking about the fact that you were late. You were late. You said you would be here, and you weren't here, and we need to address this, right? And so you were late turns into... You're no good, such and such. You, you, you were supposed to pick up the laundry. You didn't pick up the laundry. You're supposed to clean the dishes. And wait, 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 whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. That's what we call a kitchen sink. You're getting, every, you're getting the screws and the pipes thrown at you in the conversation because things haven't been reconciled. And some of us need to hear this very, very spiritual, but at the same time practical language of forgiveness. And to ask this question of of what do I need to do to move toward reconciliation? 
to move toward forgiveness, to move toward not necessarily the end. Uh, I get this image of uh, forgiveness being uh, forgiveness being a staircase, and you know we we tend to want to bound up to the top of the staircase when the work of God for some of us may just be taking the next step. Certainly getting to the top, certainly saying, I don't even remember what you did, although memory doesn't really treat you that way. Memory kind of stays. The work of God may be for us to simply stop spitting at that person's name. Lastly, lastly, when we forgive, we hurt. When we forgive, we, we become agents of reconciliation. When we forgive, we point toward a faith in Jesus Christ. When we forgive, we point toward a beauty in Christ that is uh, not just attractive, but breathtaking. Now, I want you to look back at verse 6, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, um, and then uh, I'll, I'll come to the end of this. Acts tells us three obvious things that happen when these women forgive the church. Now, there's service there, and people are stepping up, and people are serving, and the church always needs the church to exercise service and servant's heart. But there's three other things that are happening here because I think of this forgiveness, this quality of the relationship. The Bible says, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, now I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to talk about the first two of these, um, this, the word of God increasing and the number of the, the disciples multiplying, um, but I want to talk about this third piece where a great many of the priests come to the faith. And, and, and you've, you've heard this kind of in the message, but, but one of the most powerful, potent acts for Christians to do in relationships is to forgive. When we, um, when we do this, when we do this, we take the cross of Christ on our own backs and we offer that cross to people. How are we pointing people toward Jesus when we forgive? We're doing it because when we forgive, we are pardoning real wrongs like Jesus, who is our Messiah, pardoned real wrongs. When we forgive, we are choosing Christ-likeness, which grants grace that is never earned. You cannot dress yourself up to come and get God's grace. You don't have that many clothes. But Jesus wears the wardrobe that you can't fit. Jesus wears the clothes that you can't buy. He wears your righteousness and he offers it to you. He forgives you. He forgives me. And when we forgive, we do this same act. We do what Christ did for us. Jesus Christ did not overlook a wrong. He did not overlook a sin. What he did was he looked at sin and said, I assume responsibility for you. Now think about that with your friend. 
Jillian mentioned her best friend in one of her intros, uh, and, and she talked about her best friend. Think about your best friend. Your best friend is probably your best friend because they have earned the right to be your best friend. They have teed you off enough, so much so that it is, it is a better investment to stick with them now because they know you're junk. They've hurt you so much. You can't get rid of them. That's why they're your best friend. You don't love them. They've been here too long. That's what it is. You owe them too much to let them not be your best friend. See, I know I got a witness. I know I'm telling the truth. Think about that best friend. Think about those other close colleagues, those close friends of yours. Think about when they wronged you. And whether or not you can not overlook their wrong, but assume responsibility for it. You know what that looks like? That looks like arguing, arguing, and you telling yourself, I take responsibility for this. That means I take the guilt, the blame for this. Not, I'm closing my eyes to it. Not, it didn't happen. Not, let's just pretend like this never came up between us. But I take responsibility for this. That is a distinctly gospel Christian behavior. The Bible says that the word increased, that disciples multiplied, that these priests came to the faith. Now, I looked at one commentary that said there were 18,000 priests in Jerusalem at this time. And these, these priests uh, in Jerusalem during this period of early church history had jobs in the temple, but they were very small jobs. They were menial jobs. Some of these priests were involved in the temple cult. Others of them were sort of retired. They were uh, semi-retired. They were, they were all over the place. There were too many priests for the need uh, at the time. These priests were not held in high regard. They weren't respected as they once were. Um, they were there. They were, they were there, like these widows in some ways, with very little income, and they saw what the Christians were doing. The priests witnessed how the church handled the widows, how the widows handled their church, and they were attracted to Jesus because of it. Now, now um, it might not be the most noble of reasons to believe in Christ, although I can't think of a nobler reason than Christ feeding you. These priests who had little income saw the church taking people who had little income and making sure that they had food to eat. And those priests said, I want to be a part of that. Those priests looked at the church's forgiveness and they were attracted to a beautiful Jesus. These priests neglected themselves. These priests disrespected themselves, poor themselves, saw what they needed and was met by Jesus and his church. Cole, come on up. 
Maybe you're here this morning, and as I close uh, this message, you feel like one of those widows who speak the native language. You, 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 you don't have an active memory today of being wrong, but you're hearing me tell you that a gospel virtue is to forgive, uh, a gospel virtue is to receive forgiveness, and I want to encourage you that that is a reason for you to be thankful. That gratitude is a natural response to someone who has wronged somebody and been forgiven by that somebody. Because what happens is, and this is the reminder to you, that God forgives you for your wrongs. And it's unnatural not to be grateful for that. Maybe you're here this morning and you kind of filter this message through the experience of someone neglected, someone who is a widow, someone who is put to the margins. Can I tell you that in your relationship, there is probably no closer behavior than you forgiving to what Jesus Christ does. Maybe you're here this morning and As I said, you don't need this message right now. I want you to turn your attention to God for a moment, church, and to ask, what do I need to keep? What do I need to hold to from what I've heard? Bow your heads. I want to remind you who stand here, whatever your sin, Jesus died for you. Whatever your, your wound, Jesus died for you. Whatever damage you have done to your relationship with God, Jesus died for you. What you did today, what you did yesterday, what you did last week, I want you to hear the truth that, that in all you did, he died for you. But the truth you need to hear ringing in your ears and in your heart, church, is that Jesus didn't die for some better version of you. He died for you. Who you are. He died for you. Who you are. He loves you. He cares for you. His love for you is amazing. His love for you is deep. His love for you is wide. His love for you goes beyond your understanding. You can't wrap your brain around it. You can't understand the wealth of his love. You can't. You can try, and you should try, but know you will fail in understanding God's perfect love for you. Leave this place knowing that the love that we can't quite understand is perfect love that God gives us every day. And that love is the love we live with in every relationship in our lives.